0: Are you all ready to join me today in our trip to outer state? Come along quietly or not. I will talk to you about Albert.
1: For there is nothing else.
0: Some artists will make
2: yeah. it hopefully bite upon
1: Hello folks and welcome to another episode of the Planet Shivers podcast. I am and always will be Albert Shivers, and on this episode, my special guest is the Reverend Johnny Lamoria. Johnny is a podcast host, digital collage artist, writer, filmmaker, television show host. He has a lot of things on his resume, and it was really fun talking with him. Before we get to Johnny though, I just want to fill you guys in on a couple of things. First of all, lots of new art and art videos coming on my Instagram, at Albert Shivers, so keep your eyes peeled on that. And next week, the Planet Shivers 500. That's the only information I'm going to give you, but you're not going to want to miss this episode. It's going to be a lot of fun. Racing related, that's the only hint I'm going to give you, but it is the first annual... Planet Shivers 500 And I'm excited for it And in a general sort of way Look, this is episode 69 Episode 70 is next week Shit is about to get funky And weird on this podcast I promise you The ideas have been exploding out Of both of my ears And I can't wait for you to hear them Also, I want to do a little Birthday shout out to Collage artist of the Harlem Renaissance Romare Bearden Um, This is actually fitting. Johnny does digital collage, I do traditional collage, and Romare Bearden was a collage artist during the Harlem Renaissance. He's done a lot of great work. He is one of my biggest influences with my collage work, and I would recommend you all going and checking out his work. He was one of the leading artists during the Harlem Renaissance, and he also did paintings too which are very interesting especially coming from the angle that he is mainly a collage artist. You could see some of that overflow into his paintings. Big inspiration to me. Go check out the work of Romare Bearden. Now with all that said, let's go and talk to Johnny right after this message.
2: Tired of having headache pain? Nausea, heartburn, indigestion, upset stomach, diarrhea? Try new Pepto-Bismol chewables made in grape, peanut butter, and Cherry flavor for family and
1: kids alike. That's right, David. And all this and more can be found at a low price at your local pharmacy. For our southern guests, keep a lookout for the new brand, Peppy Biz Milk. Must be 18 years old under the purchase. Has to apparent before overdosing. Do not take of
2: pretty much triples. You are listening to the first station on your drive WCNW operating on a frequency of 1,500 kilocycles in Brooklyn, New York. Today, I am excited
1: to be joined by Johnny Robinson, otherwise known as the Reverend Johnny Lamoria. Thanks for doing the show, Johnny.
2: It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me on.
1: Definitely. So you, as I did a little bit of research on you, you have a lot of things to your credit, um, two of which are writer and filmmaker. I guess let's, let's jump right into that. Um, talk to me a little bit about your writing first.
2: Well, let's see. Um, I think my biggest biggest accomplishment writing-wise is the audio drama that I put out with my two brothers called The Curse of Civilization, which you can find on Spotify and various other podcasting uh, networks, Anchor FM as well. Hmm. Uh, that's a uh, time travel action adventure uh, serial, uh, you know, hearkening back uh to the golden age of radio sort of thing that was pretty fun to do
1: okay what um so that is that's something that i've always been interested in as in the golden age of radio and the old Mm -hmm. radio dramas and comedies so did you what did you guys do like to get that happening nowadays when such a medium is almost, you know, it's, it's definitely not as popular, almost forgotten about.
2: Well, it's not, I mean, if you, uh, if you restrict yourself to actual terrestrial radio, uh-huh. it's a bit hard to do, yes. Although, if you get in uh, good with a local public radio station, you could probably uh, set up some sort of radio theater section with them. But today, with podcasts, the barriers for entry into doing radio drama have never been lower. If mm-hmm. you got a script and you got some connection with voice actors, you can get quite a lot done in terms of radio drama or radio comedy for that matter. Mm-hmm. Um, so it really, this is in a way a sort of golden age for indie audio uh, content. Right. Uh, so it's less of a challenge in getting it done and more of a challenge in getting it done. Right. I suppose. Right.
1: <laughs> that, that, that is always a challenge. Um, is this out there for people to find?
2: Yes. As I said, uh, if you go, uh, to anchor.fm, uh, if you go to Spotify, you go to most of the major podcast sharing sites you can find, just look for uh, curse of civilization. Not the not the Civilization, just Curse of Civilization. Um, and we're also working on another one that should be coming out, I would say, sometime next year. Uh, that's going to be more of a, a tense sci-fi thriller, but in the same general uh, podcast serial format.
1: Okay, gotcha. Now, let me ask. So, you also have experience hosting a podcast. Mm-hmm. Is there a difference between hosting the, the podcast that you did and doing a, a scripted, for lack of a radio show? Is there a difference between the podcast and the radio show?
2: Night and day. Um, usually, if you're doing a, a radio show, as opposed to the you know interview format podcast, you're not the main uh, actor. On it. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you're the one writing... Uh, sometimes you are also the one doing all the voice parts, but really at that point, it's more likely that you'll be using voice actors. So that means that on one hand you can rely and seek out people who are really trained to do that sort of thing. But on the other hand, it also means the perennial lack of control over your finished product, because you're not the one saying every line, Mm -hmm. uh, also the prep work is much much different uh if you're the writer you are doing all the pre-production because you're writing everything there's a lot lot less improvisation in audio dramas than there is in podcasts because podcasts are mostly improv conversations or improv interviews um another thing that i don't think uh enough i don't think people realize Is that for every second of dialogue that you hear in a uh, audio drama of some sort, there's probably at least 100, 200 seconds that gets cut because the directors need every possible different kind of take. Do -hmm. this line scared? Do it happy? Do it being possessed by an ancient Egyptian? Do it all sorts of different ways. They get all these different lines so they can sift through the different takes. To find one that works best for that situation and works best for all the other uh, line readings, mm-hmm. so the the prep work and the workflow is very different than a podcast.
1: Right, that makes that makes total sense to me. Would you mind going into a little bit what this this release is about? Give folks maybe a little bit of a preview.
2: Sure. Uh, well, the curse civilization, as I said, is a uh, time travel uh, action comedy sort of thing. Uh, if you are familiar with the whole ancient aliens phenomenon, mm-hmm. if uh, if you're familiar with the idea that, like, you know, alien star civilization, that sort of thing, you'll get a good sense of what's going on in the podcast. It's uh, something along those lines. Uh, we find out that our civilization was actually started by someone or something extraterrestrial and having to deal with that and having to deal with all the paradoxes that come with time travel, how you can change things in the past, they may or may not change things in the future, stuff like that.
1: Okay. Um, what what gave you an interest to do a, a whole project on that particular subject?
2: Well, time travel is always a fun uh, sci-fi trope Mm -hmm. I like those I mean and I'm not a my take on the whole ancient alien thing is uh, I mean when you get right down to it it is a certain form of racism the idea that uh, people who lived in those civilizations couldn't possibly do all these wondrous things so it must have been aliens
1: right yeah, and that audience. that's i'm just sorry to cut you off but that that is a point that um that i agree with and feel like i don't hear it enough
0: mm-hmm.
1: that we so easily discount an ancient civilization they couldn't possibly do cuz they don't have the technology and the truth is like we really don't know for sure right there's so and many this, things this that different. have been that have been wiped out by cataclysms that it's hard mm-hmm. to know the whole story
2: yeah and even if we grant that they have the level of technology that we think they had, mm-hmm. just because we couldn't do it doesn't mean they couldn't do it.
0: Right. I mean,
2: it's a, it is amazing what you can do with a certain level of technology if you actually put your mind to it. Yeah. Which we don't sometimes. <laughs> right. But having said all that, it is still an enormously fun concept to play with. Absolutely. Who doesn't love having an alien dressed up like an ancient Mesopotamian god? hmm uh, so, so it's a, it's a fun thing to use as a, as a fictional device. Gotcha. Even if Yeah. Uh, veracity of it is kind of spotty.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, really the other, uh, inspiration for it was, uh, the brief for my brother, because he wanted to do a entire series of radio dramas that involve the ends of civilization. So, uh, once you have that as a uh, marching orders, it kind of forms what kind of stories you're going to be telling.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Remind, uh, the first thing it reminded me of is The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Uh, Are okay. you familiar with that?
1: Yes, I am.
2: Yeah. Uh, well, as you probably know, it started out as an actual radio drama on the BBC. And um, Douglas Adams' Adams's, uh, original idea for it was... To have every episode end with the destruction of Earth, so it'd be more of an anthology thing—a a funny sci-fi anthology—and every episode ended with Earth being destroyed. Uh, that didn't happen. He, you know, constructed the story a bit more after the initial destruction of Earth, but still having that as a concept is kind of fun.
1: Yeah, definitely. So what um, you mentioned, one, how, how, do you have uh, a lot of future ideas to, to continue these projects of the audio dramas?
2: Uh, yes, I, I, I think we've got enough to keep us uh, busy for a while. There's cool. uh, this one, this upcoming one, which I believe is uh, the working title is The Technician. And then I do have another idea for a uh, road comedy set on the moon. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the concept of road comedies. Yes. Oh, uh, I I love the idea of them. I just the the tropes that are involved in them.
0: Right. I, and the actual
2: feel, feel execution f- sometimes leaves a bit to be desired, but the idea is fun.
0: Right.
1: So and I'd if like to give
2: you a sort of sci-fi version of uh, a road comedy called "The uh, Road to Tranquility," because it's set on the moon.
1: Gotcha. Um, for the listener. Um... Tell, tell me a little bit about what, what a road comedy is.
2: Well, the classical road comedy were a series of movies that uh, starred uh, Bob Hope and Bing Crosby. Mm-hmm. And this was back in the uh, 30s. They were called road comedies because that was the name of the title. So it was like The Road to Alaska or The Road to uh, Burma, The Road to something or some exotic location. Mm-hmm. And it was these two uh, scoundrels essentially uh, involved in some sort of crackpot scheme going to this exotic location where they get mixed up with a woman and some sort of action adventure drama ensues at the location. And there's singing and jokes and running gags throughout the movies. And there's that entire thing just sound like a very fun uh, sandbox to play with, to sort of evoke that idea.
1: Mm. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of latitude to those movies and, and continuing that tradition, let's say, of, of that style of a film or a recording mm-hmm. because, you know, the, the location, in my opinion, the location in which you choose, so let's say the road to Burma, the, mm-hmm. the location is what writes the script. You know, you're doing mm-hmm. things, the characters are getting into hijinks, that have something to do with where they're headed, be it on the way there or when they get there.
2: Right. But there's also a certain timeless quality in that the actual location doesn't really matter as far as script. It could be the road to anywhere. It's just the going to and arriving at the exotic location that is the impetus for the story. Mm Mm-hmm. So, which makes it a nice thing to use universally, because it could be the road to literally anywhere.
1: Right, right. That's definitely. So let's uh, let's transition a little bit and talk about your filmmaking. Okay. Uh, I'm sure the two cross over a little bit, but let's let's talk a little bit about your filmmaking. How'd you get started?
2: Well, I can't say as much. I've done as much filmmaking as a I would like, and be enough to say that is one of the main things i do my main uh creative project when it's come to filmmaking hasn't actually been released yet we're still getting it edited it's a uh 3d movie okay uh that is a sort of modern retelling slash sequel to the judgment of paris which has been one of my favorite myths uh from greek mythology that's the one where the gods are attending a wedding and all the gods have been invited, except the goddess Eris, who's the goddess of chaos, confusion, disorder. Now, Eris crashes the wedding party. Mm-hmm. And when she crashes it, she throws a golden apple into the middle of the wedding party. And it has the word, in Greek, the word is Callisti, And it means to the fairest. The idea being that whoever was the prettiest goddess at the wedding party would get the apple. Well, three goddesses started fighting over it. The goddess Hera, who's the goddess of power and majesty, the goddess uh, Athena, who's the goddess of martial ability and wisdom, and the goddess Aphrodite, who's the goddess of love and beauty. So they're fighting over the apple, and they decide they're going to get the, uh, I think it's the prettiest mortal man to decide who's the prettiest goddess And that turns out to be Paris, who's the prince of Troy. So they all go to Paris, and they say, hey, you choose which one of us is prettiest. And then they all immediately attempt to bribe him. Hera says, you choose me, I'll make you king of all the earth. Uh, Athena says, choose me, I'll make you the wisest man in the world. And Aphrodite says, choose me and I will get you the prettiest human on earth. Well, Paris is a young guy and doesn't always think with his head, or at least not the big one, mm-hmm. and chooses Aphrodite the um, so he can have the, most beautiful woman on earth, who turns out to be Helen of Sparta, who's currently married to the king of Sparta. So Paris uh, gets an opportunity to steal Helen away from Menelaus, who's the king of Sparta, and that starts the Trojan War. Uh, mm-hmm. So what what we did was we did a 3D film that was a sort of modern retelling of that and a sequel to it, which was very interesting to do. Because the techniques for doing a 3D film are very different than traditional film techniques.
1: Right. So when you say 3D, what exactly do you mean?
2: Well, you would need to wear 3D glasses in order to see it. And what happens is you put on 3D glasses and the action takes place all around you. You're a silent observer in the middle of the movie. What we had access to was a stationary camera. Mm -hmm. that had little cameras all around it so all the actors did all their acting sort of circling this main camera so that later on when it does finally get fully edited and everything you would be the in the middle of this and you'd turn your head and see one goddess doing this turn your head and see one mortal doing that gives you a fully immersive experience
1: so would this be the same thing as uh, like VR or the, the 360 cameras or is this something different?
2: No, this would be the same thing. This would be the 360 uh, cameras that you uh, that you mentioned. Uh, mm-hmm. This was uh, filmed a few years ago back when I think the technology was a bit more experimental than it is today. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's still a very fun project to do. And hopefully, at some point, you'll see the light of day. That'd be nice.
1: Yeah, a lot of times it's it's best not to rush it. Too. Well,
2: it's also uh, best to make sure that you have people who can actually edit this, um, the film properly. That's the major problem. Mm-hmm. Stitching is what it's called. That's when you get all the different angles to actually work together to be a 3D uh, experience. That requires some specialized knowledge, and we're still working on that.
1: Okay. So I obviously stitching together uh, a three dimensional film is vastly different I'm sure than editing a regular regular style film
2: right I could do that right I, mean, <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I could do stitching at least not quite yet
1: mm. so one, one question that I, I ask everybody I, I enjoy getting into this with folks is where are you from Johnny
2: well, I was born in Alabama. Okay. And I moved up to Pennsylvania when I was a kid. And then I went back to Alabama to go to uh, college. And then I moved to Asheville, North Carolina, where I lived for about 10 years. Okay. It was in Asheville that um, I actually had a uh, public access cable show. Really? Uh, yes. Uh, Asheville had its own public access uh, cable channel called URTV and i uh, secured a uh, a late night talk show of sorts it was the only show that was scheduled for 2 a.m and the only show that needed to be scheduled for 2 a.m which i was quietly proud of
1: <laughs> what kind of what kind of things did you guys cover on the talk show
2: uh well that's the thing uh, if you're if it was on after 2 a.m that's called like the watershed so you could show pretty much anything you wanted to okay so we had um, we had punk acts uh, we had uh, psychedelic belly dancers. Uh, we had uh, had a couple of exotic dancers had all, all sorts of uh, bohemian types on mm-hmm. and it was just very fun to have them perform and then interview them with, uh, with a green screen so we could just have some trippy visuals going on in the background. While I interviewed them. That was just a, a very uh, a fun uh, little piece of entertainment there.
1: Yeah, it definitely sounds like it. Do you have any any favorite episodes that you've done that come to mind?
2: Uh, favorite episodes. Or maybe Let's at least
1: see. one that might may stand out to you.
2: Um, well, I do think the uh, Belly Dancer episode was technically a very good one mm. uh just with the filming and uh arranging effects and stuff like that um there, that wasn't the only show that i was a part of i was also a cameraman for uh, a show called mount dungeon which was local uh, indie music okay. uh and that was a particularly a uh, fun show to do because uh we had uh, a very good artist Do the uh, backgrounds uh, for was essentially music. We would shoot a music video for them. They come into the studio. They perform a couple of sets with these wild images going in the background, and we do an interview with them. Uh, I had some. We had some very good uh, musicians on there. Asheville is a very a pretty happening town uh, music wise. Okay. Uh, As for. Pleasure Saucer. That was the name of the show, by the way. It was called The Pleasure Saucer. Uh, Let's see. Um, Fighting Fauna was a a, a zero-wave band that we had on. They were very interesting people. Uh, The lead singer made a point of essentially uh, nearly assaulting (laughs) the uh, crowd for performances and getting them to assault her. Uh, so that was a very interesting dynamic. <laughs> she was very into visceral experience when, when performing. Uh, so that was, that was pretty cool. Uh, as I mentioned this, we did um, pretty good with the belly dancer episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was also the um, bur the, like, I think it was something like the national burlesque is a national burlesque convention was held at uh, Asheville, one year and i was the uh, filmer for that so i managed to get like five episodes out of that just filming all these amazing acts from all over the country that performed there so that was pretty cool
1: yeah that sounds amazing and how,
2: how long did this show run for oh i'd say about three or four years unfortunately there's not me much records of it right now mm-hmm. uh you know the vagaries of moving and the channel itself there was some uh, power struggles over it, I suppose. Okay. Uh, some people didn't like the way it was being run, and there was all sorts of uh, commotion about that. And eventually, due to that, the channel itself got shut down, which was unfortunate. Hmm. Uh, but, c'est la vie, I suppose. Yeah, <laughs> you
1: know, it, it projects that happens all the time. With those things, so many things happen that are out of our control,
0: mm-hmm.
1: especially the the bigger the, the platform and the more people, the more hands that are in that stew, the easier yeah. it is for things and to change. And the
2: more control the government has over it, because as a public access channel, uh, this was being technically administered by the local government. Okay. So they always had their hands involved in it, which was very, very rarely helpful
1: would you uh, go into that a little bit how how does a government have their their hands on a a public access show
2: well you get a public access show through deals that the cable company makes with the local government at least this is what used to happen when we had public access shows Mm -hmm. we don't really have those nowadays the era of public access tv is kind of over with but back Mm -hmm. in the day say 15 20 years ago okay the idea was local governments would grant a monopoly to cable companies they would say okay you're the cable company for this area in return for being granted this monopoly the cable company would set aside a couple of channels for use by the public okay and we had a city channel and a county channel and a public access channel but The public access channel was always losing out to the money that was being granted the city and county channel because those were more under the direct control of the city and county governments. They didn't Mm -hmm. do nearly as much, but uh, it was still more under direct control. So they got the lion's share of the money. So it was always a struggle to try to get an equal share of the money granted the uh, public channels. There was accusations of mismanagement uh, because certain people didn't get the things they wanted out of the public access channel, uh, it raises interesting questions about the nature of democracy. Okay. Because the people who were Billy aching wanted more control over the channel itself. Like they want a council of producers to have good direct control over the, um, channel. Whereas what was really set up was there was a manager hired to run the channel. And at first blush, the idea of having direct control by the producers themselves to run the channel sounds like a very democratic and good idea until you see it in action and realize that the kind of people who want that kind of control are not people you want to shine your shoes, let alone run anything you want to actually use. One of the great things about having a manager is you didn't have to worry about all that bureaucracy and um being interfered with by other producers Mm
0: -hmm. because
2: the manager all they're there to do is make sure that the channel runs well they don't have any other agenda so in some respects in some circumstances i think paradoxically less democracy gets you a better product i'm not going to you know say that's a hard and fast rule but this is something i did observe uh, with the public access uh, incident, more democracy without certain safeguards is not always a good thing.
1: I can understand that. I had, I'd not quite thought of it that way, but hearing your explanation, I can understand what you mean. So um, this would be a inter- good segue to do. Um, I don't get too political on this show, but it, it's of interest to me, especially nowadays. Um, If you wouldn't mind going into it a little bit. uh, Mm -hmm. So in doing my research on you and and looking at your social medias and such, um, I would say that you're pretty openly a libertarian. And amongst people who don't know much about it. Now, I know a little bit. I know enough to not be prejudicial against it. But a lot of people are. Um, A lot of people have drawn a lot of their own conclusions on any party, but the main two. Mm -hmm. Um, and I haven't had somebody who was such a libertarian, um, on the show yet in terms of, I assume knowing the terrain, would you mind going in? You know, it doesn't have to be a very long explanation if you don't want, but would you mind going into a little bit of your relationship with being a libertarian and what that entails? as a whole
2: yes the first thing you need to understand about being a libertarian is that if you ask three different libertarians what their definition of libertarianism libertarianism is Mm -hmm. you're going to get five different answers and each one is the only correct one okay gotcha (laughs) um i would another thing you need to uh, realize is that the word libertarian is fraught and it's fraught because Americans tend to use it one way and the entire rest of the world tends to use it another way. Okay. The original libertarians were a bunch of French anarcho-communists back in the 19th century. Uh, they call themselves libertarian socialists because to call yourself an actual anarchist would to get you arrested. Just calling yourself an anarchist would get you arrested. So they call themselves libertarians. The idea of the of the American form of right wing, for lack of a better word, libertarianism, didn't come about until the fifties, when uh, some people saw that the word existed, and as far as they knew, no one else was using it, so they sort of uh, appropriated it, mm-hmm. and that's where you get what we think of as, say, the Libertarian Party from. So there is some perennial confusion about what you mean by libertarian because depending on who you ask, you could mean very different things. Right. But there is a certain through line through all those different types of libertarianism in that libertarianism means a lack of centralization. Uh, It is a move towards decentralization and cooperation. I would say those are the two main hallmarks of libertarianism and i mean cooperation is the opposite of coercion Mm. not forcing people to do things okay everything else stems roughly from that now i should point out that as of a couple of weeks ago while i am still a member of the libertarian party of pennsylvania i am no longer a member of the national libertarian party okay because the national libertarian party is crashing in my opinion there has been um there's always been a shall we say a dynamic tension between uh those people who are libertarians who see libertarianism as a well as a form of liberation of people being free and who are themselves, in many respects, liberal. Mm-hmm. You know, they're economically liberal, they're socially liberal. Uh, they just believe in a, a, a liberal mindset. That's one part of libertarianism. The other part of libertarianism are those who are social conservatives, who see libertarianism as a way of getting back to a, I would say, romanticized view of how society should work uh people who are overly uh, constitutionalists fall into this category well the socially conservative wing of libertarianism has now become rather ascendant and they are determined to transform the libertarian party into an organization that was as i said you know had that creative tension dynamic tension between the two groups into one that is solely for social conservatives. And I have I've reached my breaking point in having to deal with that. Okay. So I have I have resigned from the National Libertarian Party, as have quite a few other people. Mm-hmm. And I would say, your listeners I want to keep a lookout, there may be some, some alternatives forming to the National Libertarian Party. If you thought, well, I kind of like libertarianism, but these guys seem crazy or seem like they're more interested in defending the Confederacy than defending liberty, you should be on the lookout because we may have some alternatives coming up for you relatively soon. Interesting. Uh, There's an inclusive for you.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no. That'll that'll, uh, put some asses in the seats. Uh, (laughs) So um, do you feel like the party went through a big change since 2016. Did, did Trump have anything to do with a shift in the party? Cause just from my perspective, which is an extremely outside perspective is that I've been hearing more about the libertarian party and people jumping to that, that team, which is the way it comes off to me, not the way you explain it, but the way other people have explained it to me is that Mm -hmm. it's all almost like a sports team. Do you feel like there's been
2: a little bit more hubbub since 2016? Well, 2016 was our most successful year ever as a, as a political party in terms of our presidential candidate. Mm -hmm. Uh, Gary Johnson and Bob Weld did outstandingly well. Uh, And I would think, a large portion of that was just how unserious the other two candidates were uh, right. for that year.
0: Yeah.
2: Hillary Clinton and uh, Donald Trump were very weak candidates. Mm-hmm. And I would say a lot of people uh, didn't take them very seriously. They didn't take the, the, poss- the uh, dangers of them very seriously. That's obviously not, not true in 2020 when everyone saw the 2020 election as literally life or death. Right. I should point out that even with that, we did our second best in the 2020 election. our presidential candidate was Joe Jorgensen. And she had the second highest vote total of any Libertarian candidate, which I would venture is nothing to sneeze at. Yeah. But as far as Libertarians and Trump, I wouldn't say it's so much that there was a, a change in the party as more of a mask-off situation in the party. You've always had people in the Libertarian Party who were scruffy Republicans. Republicans who couldn't quite hack it in the Republican Party, so they they became Libertarians. Now, that's certainly not uh, all, or I would say even most of Libertarianism, but that is something that has happened. Those people found their champion in Donald Trump. Because Donald Trump, if nothing else, is very much a Republican who is not in favor of the Republican establishment. Right. Which is a bit like saying that, I mean, yeah, he's not in favor of the Republican establishment. That doesn't make him a good thing. It just makes him not in favor of the Republican establishment. Right. (laughs) Unfortunately, too many people thought, yes, because he's anti-establishment he's um what we need that was not the case but that's what a lot of people thought mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sorry I, I kind of lost the thread of your question there
1: oh no that's fine um i guess my perspective being someone who is is pretty i consider myself not well versed in political matters but mm-hmm. for me to be hearing a lo- much more about the libertarian party than i had ever heard before in the past four years was very curious to me as to what, what it was all about. So it's your, your answers are, are very fitting and and are explaining it to me very well. And I think up to this point, you know, I've been involved in however many elections I've been old enough to vote in. And in my previous circles, not everybody, but a handful of people View the Libertarian Party as just taking votes away from the main two. And well, the opinion of you're throwing your vote away.
2: Right. Well, if you take the uh, concept of electoralism at all seriously, right. then it's, it's not a horse race. You're not supposed to bet on the winner. You're supposed to bet on the person you want to win. So if you want people to vote for a candidate appeal to them. That's what I always found grimly amusing about the 2016 and 2020 elections. Mm. There was all these almost cries of betrayal. You're not voting for my guy. How yeah. dare you not vote for my guy? Yeah. Do you want the other guy to win? No, I don't want your guy to win either. I want my guy to win. Right. But there was never an attempt to appeal to the libertarians. No one on the Clinton campaign or the Trump campaign or the Biden campaign in 2020 made any attempt to go, well, these libertarians are evidently electorally significant. Let's try to appeal to them. No one ever did that. Mm-hmm. And yet we're to blame for the wrong guy getting in. So we're, we're these the Schroedner's electorate, both uh, too big uh, to vote for the other guy and too small to actually care about. Which... Gotcha.
1: You know, a friend of mine always says, um, "You know, vote your hopes, not your fears." Mm-hmm. And that always always resonated with me because it makes sense, mm-hmm. you know. And and I don't know how familiar you are with uh, Dick Gregory, but um, he said, "When you vote for the lesser of two evils, you're still voting for evil." You know, quote. Oh. So it's it's the the other parties other than the main two flavors have always been interesting to me because there are people there putting in just as much work, if not a little more depending, because they don't have the same outlets that everybody else has access to. So it always has been interesting to me.
2: Mm -hmm. Well, the the entire study and history of third parties, Mm-hmm. I I've, I've found that fascinating. There are some really interesting ideas out there. Uh, there's a abolitionist, uh, no, no, a prohibition party out there. Their symbol is a camel, which I always found found fun.
0: Okay.
2: Uh, there is a Whig party out there. Last time I checked, there were not one but two political parties based on Spanish fascism, which is just remarkable.
1: <laughs> yeah. So uh, just to stop you for a second, so there's still a Whig party out there.
2: Well, or it's is a, this, a new Whig oh, party. They it's call themselves okay. a Whig party. There's no historical, shall we say, continuity between Got the on. old Whig party and the new Whig party. Okay. But okay.
0: Interesting.
2: There's, there, there's like two dozen different parties whose main ethos is, well, I'm not going to be a radical. I'm going to be a level-headed centrist. Vote for me. Uh, that describes the political platform of so many third parties, which just mm-hmm. sounds, you know, dull as dishwater in my opinion right
1: yeah um so shifting gears a little bit um and again you could go as deeply into this as as you want or not Mm -hmm. um but i understand that you are affiliated with the church of the subgenius
2: yes yes
1: so i i recently i recently had on um my first subgenius guest and we talked a little bit about it but i'd like to hear hear what you have to say about it
2: well, the thing about being a subgenius is that usually you don't stay uh, just a subgenius. You mm-hmm. branch out, and I certainly have. I am um, a registered and paid up reverend in the Church of the Subgenius. I am a bishop in the Moorish Orthodox Church, and I am a pope in the Cult of Discordia. Uh and they're all basically the same thing. They're a postmodern religious movement.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: In that, I think if there's a lesson to draw from it, is that religion and the metaphysics that surrounds religion is fundamentally absurd, as is life itself, but that doesn't make it not beautiful and useful. So, I try to find the beautiful and useful things out of various absurdities,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and use them to make the world better. That's my idea of it. Uh, the Church of the Subgenius is an aesthetic
0: mm-hmm.
2: because it has a certain it has certain tropes, it has certain um, modes of communication, but it's also a vehicle of expression. There is so much fantastic art that comes out of the Church of the Subgenius and the Discordians and the uh March orthodox church. And to be a part of that kind of ex- community of expression is very gratifying to me. Which is another reason I'm a part of it. Mm-hmm. It's just it's fun being around creative artistic people. And If you're around the subgenius, that's likely to happen.
1: Right. What are some examples of some art that that comes out of the subgeniuses?
2: Well, uh, I would say uh, one of the best examples is the movie Arise. Okay. Um, That's sort of the uh, premier cult film of the Church of the Subgenius. It was made by the Church of the Subgenius. You can probably find it on YouTube, I believe. Yeah. Um, I would recommend that to everybody. It's fun as hell. I'd also recommend "Welcome to the World of Tomorrow," which was made by uh, the Reverend Ivan Stang, who created the Church of the Subgenius. This was created as a sort of uh, film, a student film project, before the church. But it's also it has that same ethos. And there's been all sorts of music and uh, zines and videos and podcasts that use the church as a sort of a kernel and a vehicle of expression so it it gives a a, the in my my mind one of the hallmarks of the subgenius art is sort of a delightfully country fried midwestern punk vibe okay uh it's all about uh revival preachers and UFO cults and staying up (laughs) too late, drinking too much coffee and uh, taking too many pills and just that sort of wired uh, punk ethos is very appealing sometimes. It's a different um, feel from say the discordians who are much more in the whole the whole psychedelic hippie, Uh, aesthetic okay and then again different from the more orthodox church which gives you more of a uh how to put this an exoticism, exoticism basically you get to play around more with uh egyptian and middle eastern tropes and ideas of secret histories and things being obscured in plain sight. Those are always uh, good strokes for the Moorish Mm -hmm. Orthodox Church.
1: Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah, I had, um, I I, I feel like it just recently passed too, but I had X Day explained to me. um, Ah, yes,
2: X Day, yes. That just happened a couple of days ago.
1: Right, right. And that whole, you know, the whole thing about it, Sounds a lot of fun and very, you know, very laid back group of artists almost. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: And it just, it also gives you a nice, uh, unreality check Mm in your thinking. Because the only reason that we think it's not, uh, right before July 5th, 1998, is because the conspiracy told us that we've already passed 1998. What if they're lying? Right. Really <laughs> head, uh, just as a backup, this could all be part of the conspiracy.
1: Exactly. <laughs> it's awesome. it's so much fun. <laughs> so, in in closing, Johnny, um, creatively speaking, uh, what are you mm-hmm. up to now?
2: What am I up to now? Well, uh, currently writing a uh, steampunk novel, okay. uh, tentatively titled "The Long Weekend," a professor of ben- Professor phantasmagorica that's coming along nicely, and after that, I'm really gonna dive into writing the technician so that we can start uh recording and getting into production of that so that we it will be ready uh maybe hopefully by the holidays of this year if not then early next year that's the, that's the main plan
1: okay, great and um so. You've, you've hosted the, the Johnny Lemuria show, your podcast. You're, you're taking a little break from it for the time being. Um, yeah. But where can people find the episodes that you do have up?
2: Well, you can find those episodes wherever fine podcasts can be found, Spotify, Apple iTunes, all the standard places. Mm-hmm. You can also go to my website, johnnylemuria.com. That's where I have all my podcasts and all my art is there as well. Okay. You can also find me on social media, on your Facebook, your Instagram, your Twitter, and all those. Just looking for Johnny Lemuria, and I should pop up.
1: Okay, and you know what? Not to not to leave it out. Um, what kind of art do you do?
2: I primarily uh, do digital collage. I okay. Find uh, satisfaction in that. Um, my art does tend to run towards, I suppose, the. Mythological icon. I do like incorporating mythological themes and elements into uh, my artwork in uh, a redone format. Mm-hmm. Uh, just, I find invoking a god or goddess to be very helpful in coming uh, up with some creativity.
1: Gotcha. So, I work a good bit in collage. What is it? You know, there, there are a lot of things that I enjoy about collaging. very long list what is it that you find enjoyable about it
2: well obviously the main enjoyment of collage is the connection that comes with juxtaposition Mm -hmm. finding the two disparate elements that nothing to do with each other but when you put them together you go my god these should have been together all the time right that's a nice feeling that's sort of it's sort of a kind of puzzle solving in a puzzle that never actually existed sort of way
1: Yeah. It's, it's your own created puzzle, you know, and Mm -hmm. nobody could have put it the way I think about it is nobody could have put it together that way, except for you in that moment. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a very personal, very personal way of expression that is, you know, again, you use the perfect word, which I seek out too, which is juxtaposition, you know, Mm -hmm. getting two images to join forces that normally wouldn't, you wouldn't think of. Right. Um, what, so where do you get your, in the digital world of collage, where do you get your source images from?
2: Could really? They be from anywhere? I would say I get most of my images from Pinterest. <laughs> okay. Uh, there are some remarkable, uh, libraries and images there. Uh, you can look for old paperback covers, old advertisements, uh, old Zig, Ziegfeld Folly photographs, all sorts of things there. Okay. I would say that a good portion of the images I use do come from Pinterest.
1: All right. Let me ask you this. Have you, uh, have you ever been to archive.org?
2: I have. In fact, that's where I host all of my, uh, podcasts is on archive.org.
1: Okay. There's, no, there's tons of, of imagery to be found there as well.
2: That is very true I've and recently
1: I've recently um, stumbled across a profile on archives.org of somebody who is chronicling magazines from the 50s and probably 60s too like life magazine look magazine all those kind of things and he has them subcategoried by what they are in other words clothing advertisement car advertisement uh, mm-hmm. you know article celebrity photo. So I recently just found a bunch of really cool stuff on there.
2: That's cool. I, I should take a look, a closer look at archive for uh, photos. That would be kind of neat.
1: Yeah. That that, uh, since I found that website, it's been such like uh, a treasure chest of cool stuff from music to film footage to visuals and images Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a cool place to just sort of dive down the
2: rabbit hole. It is indeed.
1: Yeah. Well, Johnny, <laughs> this this has been a fantastic episode. Uh, I'm very happy to have gotten to know you a little bit and 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 hear about what you're up to and things. And um, yeah, thanks so much again for for giving your time and being on the show.
2: It's my pleasure. I should also point out that uh, the episode I did with you will be coming out today. I'll be putting on my website today. Oh, so awesome. <laughs> com. you can catch my interview with albert shivers on the uh, podcast today
1: cool i'll put all those links and the links to your things um in the info of the podcast so folks can see what you're up to when we were preparing for you to speak to me on your show i listened mm-hmm. to a few of your podcasts just to get myself acquainted with with your style and, w- and what you're doing and mm-hmm. I listened to, like, three or four episodes that first, that first time and really enjoyed your show. Um, oh. So I, I do, uh, we talked a little bit before the interview. I do understand taking a break. Um, I do hope you get back on it because you got a fan in me. And, um, <laughs> you know, I, I hope that um, you're able to continue down the, down the road.
2: I appreciate that. I will, the Johnny Lemuria show will rise again in some form of fashion not worry about
1: that fantastic well well I'll keep tabs on it and I'll let my folks know when you're back at it
2: that' was good thank you so much
1: and thank you for listening to another episode of the plant shivers podcast it was great having Johnny on I hope to have him on again and don't forget that you could find this episode you could find this episode and all the other episodes on all major podcast platforms and YouTube with some video little video nuggets for your enjoyment next week planet shivers episode 70 the planet shivers 500 the inaugural planet shivers 500 i hope you're there for it you are in for a treat until then i wish you a great week and take care of yourself and take care of somebody else (laughs) <laughs> oh, Chichonia, Ice Cream soda California With Candonia John Lemuria On the podcast at
0: Chichonia
1: All the time